Hey everyone, James here. So I just want to let everybody know that we are officially coming back from hiatus next week with our September smorgasbord, but in the meantime, we got another demo episode to present to you and this one is an interesting one because it was one recorded without myself because andreas and rachel recorded a couple before i was able to start recording with them so enjoy that was the j cut and this is the k cut i'm rachel coming to you from government mandated quarantine and this is andreas how are you today uh not from government mandated quarantine i just like it this way so uh i'm just uh you know, an introvert, but uh, yes, uh, this is indeed the K-Cut, and uh, today is a Rachel episode where um, I don't really know a hell of a lot of what she has in store, but I'm really excited. So, uh, what are we talking about today? Well, today I thought we'd talk about films that surprised us. We've all had a movie where we went in thinking it would be okay, and we turned out to love it, or a movie that we thought was going to be great and then it was absolutely awful, or sometimes in between. So, for example, Andreas, do you have a movie that you thought would be okay, but then you realized that it was something you really liked? One that sticks to that comes to mind. Um, I don't know if I'd say really liked, but I certainly liked it more than I thought, and in ways I never thought I would actually say. Uh, it was a film from last year, the Netflix special. Um, shockingly evil vile and oh what is that one called it's like extremely wicked shockingly evil and vile evil and vile there we go yes it's kind of like the 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 evil sister of extremely loud and incredibly close which is what i keep wanting to call it but it's not um yes yeah, zach efron who plays ted bundy and first and foremost i never thought i'd say this but zach efron's actually not bad as an actor and this is he's really grown Yes, he has. And this is like the one thing where it's like, if you ever want to, you know, shed your doubts of him as an actor, I mean, you've got something like this. And Lily Collins as well, who kind of gets uh, pigeonholed into a lot of like uh, discussions where maybe she's not quite that good. Maybe uh, she's more charming than she is, you know, full of depth. But this is another thing that negates that a little bit. Did you did you see that one or? I have not seen that one, but I've seen both Efron and Lily Collins recently, and they both have really developed into good actors. Uh, I was impressed with Collins into the bone. Um, what exactly lifted your expectations for this movie? Yeah, it kind of seemed like it was going to be maybe a, a by-the-numbers mundane look at one of America's most infamous serial killers, Ted Bundy, who's known as you know this good-looking guy who kind of took over an entire nation and got everyone's sympathy because of his charm. And that's something where it's like, yeah, of, of course I cast Zac Efron because the guy's good looking and he's got charm, but he actually encompassed like the negative side of him too, where you, you could tell that he was a little bit off. He was controlling. He was misogynistic. And you see that and it's, it's, exactly what the role called for and outside of like maybe a couple of pedestrian moments i mean for the most part it's a lot more compelling than i expected so i went out of it you know out of my living room because it's a netflix special of course pleased i wouldn't say it was my film of the year but i actually liked it when i was expecting to think it was not going to be so good wow Okay. Um, did it cover his whole life, or did it go through his arrest and everything like that? Um, more so from his uh, partner's perspective. So Lily Collins, I don't recall the real uh, woman's name, but like when she knew him, 
from, you know, when they met and they started to live together. And then she started being approached by police being like, have you seen this guy? You know, he's being questioned because he's kind of suspect. Um, so it was more so from her perspective, but that's another thing that was a little strange about it was it's from her perspective. But then when it comes to his trial, it kind of just tosses Lily Collins character like into the wayside. I know she was like isolated from the world and she was hiding in her home the entire time. But at the same time, it shifted from her perspective to the world's perspective, which is a little strange, but outside of like, you know, the occasional thing like that, nothing about it greatly bothered me, which a lot of these biopics, especially crime related ones that heavily rely on their content as opposed to storytelling would do. So, um, I ended up giving it a 3.5 out of 5 when I reviewed it, which I considered pretty good. So That's not bad considering, you know, I think you could come into that movie with certain expectations that it might be a bit shallow or... Precisely. Kind of a lifetime movie of the week sort of thing. Right, which, you know, is silly to say about crime films, but they've done it. You know, we've seen ones that are like that, so it's not far from the truth, to say the least, but... What about you? Was there one that you watched where you said, okay, that actually wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be? Hmm, well, okay. I like Will Ferrell as much as the next person. I don't seek out his movies, uh, but I appreciate when he does a good job. And I was absolutely blown away by Eurovision, which came out this spring. Oh, yes. I'm a massive Eurovision fan to start with. So I came in with these high expect, like, not, not, I mean, I, he needed to hit a certain point in order to make it a good movie. I, and it managed to strike the balance between respecting Eurovision and making fun of it in a good way. And it was surprisingly wholesome, too. And Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams were both hilarious. All of the Eurovision stars did a great job. And the soundtrack really was absolutely killer. And I don't, I haven't seen it, so I don't, I can't actually say for sure. The only musical guest I'm aware of is Demi Lovato, but was there like a lot of um, musical artists that were in this film? Was was she kind of like the main one or? No, she was barely in it really. She just, I think, showed up to bring in fans. She was funny and everything, but she wasn't in it very much. Um, no, the the real thing was that they brought in all kinds of stars and um, singers who had competed in Eurovision before or had won really? it. Um, yeah, and they managed to get about 10 people, and they all sing this huge musical number together. Wow, okay. I wouldn't say you have to be a fan, but it certainly adds an extra layer. And Farrell himself is married to a Swedish woman. I used to live in Sweden. Eurovision is basically a religion there, so he knew where he was coming from. He's been watching it since, like, 1999 or something. That's true. I never thought of it that way. So that's how he could bring, you know, this this whole level of um, expertise to it because it's something that he probably has watched at home and understands entirely. Yeah, he managed to find the key that it was goofy, but it also still had a lot of heart. And he really brought out that heart and you really rooted for these characters. They're from this tiny little town in Iceland and they're going into the big leagues and they're absolutely awful in the beginning. And the songs absolutely could be played in the contest at any point. Like they, they are that sort of cheesy but fun vibe. Well, that sounds perfect. Uh, as a as a Bjork fan, where their Icelandic accents convincing, or like in a comedy, were they convincing? Oh well, no, not really. But they they faked their way through it. Um, oh well, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm of Icelandic descent, so 
uh, a lot of the jokes I actually recognize from my own family history. And they did hit that pretty well. Like the elves, they Rachel McAdams character leaves offerings to the elves whenever she wants something to come true. And they absolutely nailed the Icelandic belief in that, which still persists to this day. And when it came during the pandemic, when everybody was so bummed out and Eurovision itself got canceled, it was just the best timing. It's a movie I would say had excellent timing. So uh, out of five, do you know what you would rate it with uh, 0.5 decimals included? Again, uh, like you, I think I would say 3.5 because it's not going to set the world on fire, but it really did do quite well for, I, I thought Farrell was going to make a royal hash of it. So it really did hit the right mark. And... On that note, I'm guessing we're going to lead into stuff that didn't hit the right mark. If anything, they missed the target entirely. The things that surprised us with how not great they are. Please lead us into this one. Okay, well with me, I'm going back to musicals again, sorry. It is Les Miserables, 2012, Tom Hooper. Oh my god, you don't like that? No! Finally, somebody else who doesn't like it that much. Yes, I'm not alone. And I am a huge fan of Les Mis in real life. The stage show is one of the most powerful things put on Broadway. It's very well done. And there are some good performances in the movie, but he made this crucial mistake. Tom Hooper, yes, I'm laying the blame squarely on you, Mr. Hooper. Well, after Cats. I mean, now we know he's an inept filmmaker. No, this was pre-Cats. This was so pre-Cats. But he was coming off of the King's speech, you know? That was yes. a serviceable movie. He was on a high. And he made them all sing live on the stage set, and most of them weren't Broadway actors, and it was atrocious. It just, it turned into this sort of paint-by-numbers version of the musical, and Russell Crowe especially, I mean, I know he's been made fun of many times, but he was, he was playing, it wasn't so much his singing either, his singing was, eh, but... He was playing the most driven character in literature, Javert spends 20 years chasing Valjean over France. Yes. And he played him like he was about to fall asleep. Or like he was like Elmer Fudd, like he was inept. Exactly. It's interesting you you bring that up because, and this is one that we've actually both seen, so we can actually discuss this even further. Russell Crowe's not a bad singer. He's an actual recording artist. But you pit, I don't know, you pit Johnny Rodden up against Pavarotti and he's going to sound terrible. Like, it's the weirdest casting choice by vocal ability alone. Meanwhile, Anne Hathaway has a killer voice. Hugh Jackman's clearly built for Broadway. Most of the young guys are Broadway actors. Exactly. It didn't seem very fair to somebody like Russell Crowe, who got the brunt end, including of my disdain, but so much of it, when in actuality he's not the, the worst singer, but he is the worst singer in this movie. Um, this is where actually recording the music might have been helpful, you know? Yeah, because at least that way they could have maybe done some production work or, you know, redone it. Because, like, you don't have to worry about the, the visual performance when you're recording it that way. Um, yeah. Although his visual performance left something to be desired. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, Russell Crowe in the 2010s, outside of maybe Noah, um, hasn't been fantastic. Uh but my biggest gripe, and this is the thing that made it difficult for me, and this is unfortunate because I've seen the film five times now, not intentionally. Twice it was intentionally. Other times it just people wanted to watch it. The editing is some of the worst I've ever seen in a mainstream production. Oh, yes. How many more close-ups can we get of Hugh Jackman's face? I can count all of his fillings. There are close-ups and there are landscape shots and there's so many shots which are actually well shot, 
but you could barely see them because it cuts away like every 0.3 seconds. And I get, I know it's supposed to match the music, but stop making such drastically different shots. All of them that you want to explore. If you can't even look at them for longer than a like milliseconds, it's a migraine. So I wanted to see it because the first time I saw it, I hate to admit it, I saw it pirated and it was a cam quality. Some buddies wanted to see it on the big screen when it finally was released. And I said, yes, I will watch it on the big screen. And that's when I noticed how headache-inducing the editing was. I said, oh, God, I can't even take this. Um, and the biggest, like, the, the the point that points it out, the like, the most is uh, Jean Valjean is, like, he sees, like, a rope against the wall. And to this day, I don't know if he climbed it or if he went down it because the editing Which is so bad. I don't next? even know what he did with it. This was like in the second half when it's like, um, you know, the revolution part. I think he's trying to escape. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it. He's trying to escape. And there's like a rope on the wall. I think he's escaping Javert for like the thousandth time. Uh, <laughs> I'm guessing. I can't remember. Coyote Roadrunner, that kind of thing. Well, yeah, exactly. Except, you know, if it was done by by icebergs. Um, and he's looking, he's eyeballing this, this rope and it's like, to this day, I don't know if he climbed under feet or if he went down it. And that is the sign of atrocious editing. Um, and that's like one part out of like everything. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, I never really noticed how the editing went that way. I just remember the endless close-ups that just, it was always one guy's face singing. And, you know, it wasn't even good singing. So I indict them on Crimes Against Music personally the only close-up that was worthwhile and of course the main reason to watch this outside of Hugh Jackman is Anne Hathaway um when she does her I dream a dream like that's like yes like that's like the only time where it's like it doesn't cut away it's a single shot and it's not extremely close up it's a nice mid-range shot of like her, her torso upwards and she's singing past the camera as if she's staring off into the distance it's like the the reason to watch the movie is that part alone. Oh yeah, and um, that song is such a personal song that it actually makes sense. But I mean, the rest of say Valjean stuff. I, I find the biggest offender here is the Valjean shots. It, it's just excessive. When he's like leaving and trying to like live on his own, and it's like the sunset, no. but it's like zoomed in on his face. Or he's like, "Gee, I'm a dad now." La la la, and it's all all straight up in his feelings. And it kind of does a, a disservice to Hugh Jackman's performance, which I would argue is like it's his greatest on-screen performance that I've seen. Oh yeah, he did a wonderful job, but yeah, the the everything around him kind of screwed him over. So I guess what's our our verdict? I would give that maybe a two point five, which is uh, great intentions but much to leave desired. What would you think? Two. Oh, even worse. Okay, that's yeah. I, that is completely fair. I think I'm being a little bit too kind to it, but that is completely fair. One of my pet peeves is when you ruin great source material, and that doesn't always mean that you have to stay completely faithful, but you need to somehow capture the spirit of it. And this was sort of a very bland version of a really good musical, so that that's what knocks off the extra star for me. And just a good book, too. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. you know, Victor Hugo's source material, I studied it when I was younger. It's, it's excellent. And yeah, you don't really get the gravitas of it, especially when it kind of like hoes and hums over lines, like, you know, he stole a loaf of bread and he had to live in isolation in a jail for however many years. And it's like, you don't really get that vibe in the film. Um, no. But 
I think we've we've griped about that one a little bit, uh, a little bit for too long. I think the, the listeners get it. We think Les Misérables is, is truly uh, Misérables. Um, but so, which movie would you would you rant about? Okay, so I think the one that that's easiest for me to go to, and it's embarrassing to say this because I was younger and I was an undergrad when this movie was first being hyped. And you know what that means when you're a male white film student and undergrad. You've had a thing for for Tim Burton. So unfortunately, yes, when I was 18, I did. And I was studying Lewis Carroll, and I was hoping that Alice in Wonderland was going to be really good. And unfortunately, it was a pain in the rear end. Like, unlike any film I've ever seen, it is absolutely terrible. It had so many good elements, too. Like, it had every chance of succeeding. Yeah, and it's... It's one of those things where you have to question, because I don't mean any disrespect to Tim Burton, who I appreciate for shaping my taste in film, but I don't really care for his stuff anymore. But was it his fault or was it the fault of Disney? Somebody was at fault here because you get you look and there's gorgeous CGI. The wardrobe mm-hmm. is fantastic. The makeup is fantastic. I believe there was 2D animation, like very briefly just to like enhance this world. And you have a very capable, talented cast who I think was appropriately assigned each of their roles. Absolutely. And it ends up becoming drivel. So what's missing here? What happened? Well, I think the biggest fault here probably has to do with screenplay. And I don't know if that's Disney who, who sought out these writers. Because I know Tim Burton doesn't really write his own stuff. You know, the closest he gets is like writing stories like Edward Scissorhands and he gets other people to write the screenplay. But um, I don't recall off the top of my head who did the screenplay, but whoever it was, good God. If you include stuff like the Futterwhacken, which is like a cringeworthy dance that just doesn't need to be there. That was the Jabberwock dance at the end, right? It was the, the, the uh, one, the the one, that, the one that Johnny Depp talks about the whole movie and then he oh, does yes. it at the end and it's awkward oh, as hell. Oh, the Futterwhacken. Yeah. <laughs> like in whatever accent he was doing. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was atrocious. Uh, and then you, you have like the, the Jabberwocky itself voiced by legendary Christopher Lee. And he says like two lines before he, he, he gets his head lopped off and it's like, that's it. That's the entire thing. Like we built up to this. Yeah. And I wasn't a huge fan of how they made Alice into sort of Alice warrior princess. Cause I, as far as I recall, that's not really how the Carol went. Was it? No, no, it isn't at all. Like, you know, yeah. um, from what I, what I remember through the looking glass, first off, she's not that much older if I'm not wrong. And she comes back and she's mature, but she's not like I'm fighting like Lord of the Rings style mature. Like it's a little bit of a different story than that. And I know what they were trying to do, but they just didn't do it well. And, you know, this whole buildup for, like, an anticlimactic, nonsensical, you know, lopping off of a head of, you know, Christopher Lee. Um, it just seemed like one of those things where, if anything, it kind of predated all of the, the live-action Disney films that commit similar errors. It relies too much on you knowing the source material, even though it's a deviation. It's not exactly Alice in Wonderland as we remember it. Um, still, it relies on you knowing the story, so it just brushes past. It just tosses you into the world. It doesn't really explain anything, and it relies too heavily on stupid jokes and things that don't matter. Even though, at the same time, this is fantastic world-building, and it kind of kills all of that. 
I also felt that the movie couldn't really settle on a tone or on an audience. It, it didn't know what type of genre it wanted to be or how, like you can transcend genre, but it didn't do it very smartly. They, they struck this on this balance between a movie geared more towards adults and teens and then a movie geared towards kids. They stuck in the sort of silly jokes as a sort of service to the Disney audience. And so it really had this awkward melding. Yeah, I know. It's, I, I fully agree with you. The The tone is completely way off. Like, it didn't know who it was servicing. And at the end of the day, it felt like they were going for the in-between, the Hot Topic crowd, which was much bigger back then than it is now. Mm-hmm. The crowd that was Tim Burton's bread and butter in the first place, so to speak. Yes. It, it's a doozy. I, I think I gave it, like, a 2 or a 1.5 out of 5 when I reviewed it. Uh, what would you give it? I'd settle around, too, so I would think. Just just really bad. So it's worse than Les Mis. I, I, I fully agree with that, let me tell you. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, how about a movie that sat solidly at a meh? So you thought maybe it was going to be really good. You thought maybe it was going to be really bad. But it turned out to be just fine. Do you have any just fine movies in your repertoire? Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, it also involves Johnny Depp. Uh Around the same time that I was, you know, into the whole Tim Burton thing, so uh, appropriately, Johnny Depp as well. And I remember when I was younger and in university, I used to take my summers in Greece to visit family. And we were trying to book the dates. And I was like, no, I've got to see this movie. I've got to see Public Enemies. I've got to see this, this movie about um, John Dillinger. Um, obscure reference-ish, kind of. I used to be obsessed with Dill- Dillinger Escape Plan which is like a, an extreme metal band that does like all sorts of avant-garde stuff. And it got me to this whole John Dillinger thing, interested about his escape and everything. Plus it's Johnny Depp and Christian Bale. When you're a young teenage guy and like, you know, you know, Batman begins in the dark Knight, and uh, you know, all the Johnny Depp stuff that just seems like it's right up your alley. Plus Marianne Cotillard was just coming off of her Oscar went for a love beyond Rose. So it seemed like a perfect casting Michael Mann's a very competent director as well, if you've seen Heat and um, and Collateral. So, uh, you know, this seemed like it was going to be really good. And at the end of the day, it was okay. Like, I feel like knowing a lot about the Dillinger escape kind of helped. But otherwise, it's kind of just, eh, did you see Public Enemies? I did not, unfortunately. But I heard it's kind of lukewarm reception at the time where it was sort of the consensus was, well, they tried and they did fine, sort of. Yeah, it seems very wrapped up in trying to become like, I don't know what to compare it to. Weirdly enough, almost like uh, The the Departed after The Departed, because it's like three years Mm -hmm. afterwards, I believe. And um, or just trying to be like one of those gritty crime films like... uh, Road to Perdition or something of that effect. But what ends up happening is all of the substance gets extracted out of it. So like I know that he escaped jail by carving, I believe it was soap or stone into a gun and pointing it at people. And they didn't realize it was fake. But when you see it in the film, like it's barely talked about, like it's kind of like amidst all of this noise and panic, like, ah, I knew it wasn't real. And, like, that doesn't explain anything. It's one of those films where it just doesn't, like, it it goes through all of the work of doing all of the stuff, but then it doesn't even bother to discuss it or really give you the experience of it. So, like, when they're discussing other criminals that he's being um, 
uh, likened to. Uh, it's all very quick, and it gets it over with. There's no real magneticism to this film. I think the word is magnetism, but still, there's no like uh, connectivity to this film. You know, it kind of just places everything there and thinks that it's okay. Not everybody is fine with just action or just stuff on the screen. You know, a story has to be told, and unfortunately, whether a story was told and was edited out or if it wasn't told at all, it just wasn't there. What about you, though? Um, I'd give it a three, by the way, out of five. Is there any film that made you feel that way, or...? Hmm. I would say American Hustle. And it's not because American Hustle was by any means a bad movie. I think it had some good directing, excellent performances. It looked beautiful. But ultimately, it just didn't land. And I'm not sure why, but I forgot about it probably right after I saw it. And then when it came out, I think it, it had either the most Oscar nominations of the year or super close. Like, it was loved by the Academy. It was. It was like 13 or something. And then it didn't win any. Yeah, because it was all four acting categories. It was the costumes. It was the writing, directing, picture. Um, There was a lot, for sure. And you're right, it didn't end up winning any, which is kind of hilarious. Uh, I have a similar story where I ended up seeing it twice. And the first time I saw it, it's one of those films you have to watch with the right people. I was in a movie theater, and people were dying laughing. And I felt, oh my god, this is the funniest film of the year. And when my buddies wanted to rent something online, I think it was on Netflix or something. I said, American hustle. We were dying in the theater laughing. It wasn't with friends. It was with strangers in the theater, but we were (laughs) dying. And I remember when we put it on and we were like silent for like 50 minutes. I was like, I swear this was hilarious. When I first saw this, I don't really, I don't really know why I'm not laughing right now. And it it was just the, who I was with. Because otherwise, it was okay, but it wasn't really the most exciting thing on Earth. If anything, it exposed how kind of glacial it is. Exactly. And it's it's a movie where nothing really went wrong, but it wasn't even memorable. I find a movie's far greater sin is to be forgettable than to be bad. Um, there are certainly movies, I would say, from that have creaked more, but at least they said something or they were they, they made a bigger impact. And I, I don't remember it as a particularly funny film either, but I watched it alone in a dorm room, so. Well, that's exactly it. I think if you saw it in, like, the same crowd, you'd be like, wow, this is, this is hysterical. I don't know. Like, it's got something there that it's trying to say about art forgery and, you know, the fact that if you're a con person as a career, you're also conning who, you're, who you yourself are as an identity, who you are to your loved ones. Um, there's obviously a great cast and they all bounce well off of one another and uh, the dialogue is is fantastic but at the same time it's kind of void of something and it's interesting that Tarantino has brought up that David O. Russell is the second best writer of characters outside of himself which is a very Tarantino thing to say and I would disagree because if you look at like Paul Thomas Anderson or if you look at Wes Anderson you look at these characters and they seem like they've come out of like a video game or like a book or like, these are like figurines that you collect. Like these are characters. You never forget their names, what they look like. And it almost feels like American hustle is is this idea of the memorable characters with all the stuff that makes them memorable ripped out of them. So they kind of just are there and they're interesting, but you don't take away anything. They're sort of 
interesting. They're sort of archetypes without anything behind them. There's like the the sort of snappy wife and the hustler and then the the smart con woman, but you don't ever see them as people, just as playing their roles within the film. Exactly. Whereas in like a Tarantino film, and I don't know how you feel about him, but if you take something like Pulp Fiction, then they're talking about nonsense. Like, what do you call a cheeseburger in France or like, you know, uh, McDonald's products in France? You're still getting to learn these gangsters as people. Like, this is their chit-chat. When it happens in American Hustle, it feels more like written jokes as opposed to the people themselves, if you know what I mean. And it's too bad because there, there's obviously some interesting stuff going on here, and I like it to a degree. But like you said, I haven't seen it since that second attempt with my buddies, and I don't even know if we finished it because they weren't on board. So, um, But for the attempt and for a lot of the things that go right in it, I would give it a 3.5, which is a pretty good score. But you know, I think the first time I saw it, I was convinced this was like top 10 material of the year, which it really isn't. I'd give it a four just because, like, again, it's a lot of people working really well at the top of their game. It just doesn't stick with you. Well, I think a four is very fair, especially given how much of the film actually goes right. It just doesn't go super duper duper far. Now, having said all of that, are you a David O. Russell fan to begin with? Like, do you like Silver Linings Playbook, Joy, Three Kings, any of that stuff? Um, I've, I'm hit and miss with David O. Russell's. Um, when he's on, he's on, but I, I don't I don't really seek out his movies in particular. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I'm not, like, in love with his stuff to begin with. I think the only film of his I like enough to, like, own and revisit is Silver Linings Playbook, which narrowly missed my, my 2010s film list, uh, the top 100. But um, otherwise, a lot of the time I watch his stuff is either because of Oscar season or... Uh, uh, my girlfriend loves Jennifer Lawrence, who he's obviously cast a few times. So, you know, that's why I watched Joy before she got nominated and knew that I would have to watch it. Which Joy was actually not bad. But otherwise... Oh, see, uh, I really disliked Joy. I just felt found it completely um, not credible. But um, Silver Linings Playbook is an example of, of a movie, I think, that really creaked. And yes. yet, um, like, J-Law was too young for her role. There... There were a few scenes that were kind of hokey, but it was still it still stuck with me far more than American Hustler did. Yeah, and I, I firmly agree with that too. Uh, oh yeah, the, the Fighter as well is actually pretty good. I think I've seen that a few times, mostly because the performances are fantastic. If it wasn't for the performances, I think the Fighter would be very substandard, like your typical underdog by the number story. But the performances are what make it fantastic. Between Melissa Leo, Christian Bale, Amy Adams. Uh, Mark Wahlberg, who I don't even like, but I like in this. Yeah, it was a phenomenal cast, and I'd agree with you that it elevated the film quite a bit. Alrighty, are there any other surprise picks we should talk about, or does that wrap everything up? Or Let's wrap everything up. Um, what would you say is a surprise film that you would recommend to our viewers or our listeners this week? Okay, perfect. So a film that I was surprised with that I actually would want to recommend to people, I'm actually going to go with something that you recommended to me. It's a Heavenly Creatures by Peter Jackson. So when I was doing my research for my top 100 films of the 90s, you were incessant on telling me, you know, you've got to watch this film. Uh, it's got fantastic acting. It's it's very, it's very memorable. And even if you don't like Peter Jackson stuff, that's not Lord of the Rings, which I adore Lord of the Rings. But I don't like Lovely Bones. Um, King Kong was okay. Well, that's true. <laughs> I don't even think Stanley Tucci does. But uh, <laughs> he was nominated for the damn thing. But... 
I think when I watched this, I was like, this isn't even just good. This is like arguably the best thing outside of Lord of the Rings that he's done. And I could, I could safely see why. I think you said you actually like it more than one or two of the Lord of the Rings films. Yeah, I mean, The Lord of the Rings is a staggering achievement, but this this movie's a much smaller movie that still manages to accomplish much of the same um, scope of this other world. And for with 1995 technology and with um, the smaller budget, which I think is phenomenal. Yeah, and the, the performances are fantastic, um, especially from a young Kate Winslet, but you have a, a different person you would say is uh, the performer of the film, correct? Melanie Linsky was absolutely phenomenal. And uh, considering it's such a grim subject matter, uh, which I won't spoil what it is in case uh, you listeners want to watch it. Um, sorry again for spoiling Alice in Wonderland before, but I, I guess that kind of slips when I don't like a film. I usually kind of spoil it, my bad. <laughs> but without spoiling too much, it's still really comedic in a dark way, in a light way. But when it's supposed to get like really serious with what it's trying to say it nails it fully so i'm gonna go with heavenly creatures which i was expecting to be pretty good but not top 50 of the 90s good which it ended up being in my top 40 i think it was like 33 or something it was pretty high that's fabulous what about you you're gonna laugh but clueless that's there's nothing wrong with clueless there's nothing wrong with uh with a teen rendition of a shakespearean story done really well it's just, it's a movie that I will um, always turn on when it's on because I find that it is perfectly captures this time of the sort of 90s. Like it, it's, it basically wrote the mid 90s, let's be honest, in terms of fashion. And we oh, sort yeah. of codified it retroactively. But what's more, it's got a lot of heart and it takes this uh, Jane Austen novel and just perfectly updates it with very few changes. I cannot get over how smoothly it transitions. And I, I just think it's a very fine example of an updated work. I meant Jane Austen, my bad. I said Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's a really great way of updating uh, updating a work and making it the making the subsequent work its own. And it's interesting because even if it wasn't for that, you know, its source material at the time was lumped in with so many other teen films, but it's obviously transcended all of them to the point where people recognize that now is not even just a good teen film, but just flat out a good film from the nineties. And it's not even a nostalgic goggles type thing either. It's just witty. It's sharp. All of the characters are likable. Um, the performances are excellent. Exactly. It does the source material really well. Um, or again, I, I I goofed and I said Shakespeare. My bad. Uh, I, I'm watching a lot of '40s films. There's a lot of Shakespeare stuff in there. But uh, when it comes to Jane Austen adaptations, especially the ones that don't just try to be time relevant, it's pretty damn good. I'd argue it's one of the better ones. Yeah, and it presents each character as this as the stereotype you see in a teen movie: the stern father, the dorky teacher, and then it dives deeper, which I really appreciate. Perfect. So, listeners, that's uh, two 90s gems for you. You've got Clueless and you've got Heavenly Creatures, which are far from the same film, but they're worthwhile anyway. So, It's all about crazy teenagers in the end. That is actually 
there you go. That's your double billing. Teenagers who don't know how to control themselves. So we've got uh, we've we've got to wrap it up. But uh, this is this is uh, Andreas, and uh, who am I with to sign us off? Rachel, coming to you from day ten out of fourteen. And so that was the K cut, and this is the L cut. 